Chapter 10 Acting with Courage The Burmese social activist Aung San Suu Kyi, born in 1945, was shaped by her parents' participation in civic and governmental affairs. Her father, Aung San, assassinated when she was two years old, was regarded as the father of modern-day Burma. Her mother, Da Kim Ki, raised in Suki, and her two brothers to be deeply committed to Buddhist practice and civic responsibilities. When Suki was 15, her mother was appointed the ambassador to India, and the family moved to India, where Suki was introduced to the principles of nonviolent resistance. After earning a bachelor's degree at Oxford University and working for three years at the United Nations in New York City, Suki's married fellow Oxford student Michael Aris in 1972 and settled in England. However, in April 1988, Suki's mother became ill, and Suki returned to Burma to care for her. Back in her homeland, Suki soon became the leader of the popular nationwide democracy movement. She wrote an open letter to the military junta controlling the country, asking them to cease using arms against peaceful, unarmed protesters and to return political power to the people. During the protests that followed, more than 10,000 demonstrators were killed. Despite the ban on large political gatherings, Suki traveled the country giving speeches before large crowds, although she was harassed by the military. A writer reports on her striking demonstration of courage. In one town, as she was walking down the street with her associates, soldiers lined up in front of her with their rifles at the ready, threatening to shoot if she advanced any further. She calmly walked on, and at the last moment, a higher officer countermanded the order to fire. Her campaign unified the opposition to the government and also introduced human rights and the principles of nonviolence as goals closely related to the tenets of Buddhism. In 1989, Suki was placed under house arrest. Even so, the pro-democracy movement grew so strong that in 1990, the military junta announced a general election. Suki won an extraordinary 82% of the vote, making her the country's prime minister. The junta, however, refused to recognize the election results and soon cut off her communication with her family in England, evidently to break her spirit. Since then, she had spent a majority of her time under house arrest and endured mixed messages and harassment from the junta. In 1997, her husband, still living in England, was diagnosed with terminal cancer and wanted to visit Suki. The government of Burma, by then renamed Myanmar, refused him a visa but told Suki she could visit him and their two children in England, knowing that once she left the country, she would not be able to return. She decided to stay in Myanmar. In her acceptance message for the 1990 Sakharov Prize for Freedom of Thought, she bore witness to the resilience of courage in the face of one of the most oppressive fear-based regimes. Within a system which denies the existence of basic human rights, 
fear tends to be the order of the day. Fear of imprisonment, fear of torture, fear of death, fear of losing friends, family, property, or means of livelihood. Fear of poverty, fear of isolation, fear of failure. It is not easy for a people conditioned by fear under the iron rule of the principle that might is right to free themselves from the enervating miasma of fear. Yet even under the most crushing state machinery, courage rises up again and again, for fear is not the natural state of civilized man. Finally, on November 13, 2010, Suki was released from house arrest. After being detained 15 of the 21 preceding years, she has received numerous international awards, including the Nobel Peace Prize, the Sakharov Prize, and the U.S. Medal of Freedom. She is a leader who exemplifies courage directed in service of the common good. Courage forms the heart of the common good leadership model and fuels the other six practices. The word courage derives from the French cour, meaning heart. Heart, in this case, does not refer to the organ that pumps blood, but to the vital center in each of us from which our choices and actions reverberate out into the world. Without courage, we might have a good model for leadership, but may not be able to put it into action. Moreover, as a leader engages in the other six practices, they become resources that feed her courage. Thus, the model is like a circulatory system. Courage feeds and is fed by the other practices. Courage differs from fearlessness. As Ambrose Redmoon, author and activist, says, Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. Fear is an instinctual response to threatening stimuli involving the most ancient part of our brain, the brainstem, or reptilian brain, and triggering the flight-or-flight response. Humans have the capacity to override the reptilian brain's fear response and listen to the more reasoned response that comes from the neocortex, the part of the brain capable of abstraction, planning, and conscious thought. Courage is largely a matter of responding to life circumstances with choices that flow from the place of higher-order reasoning. Thus, a person can be filled with fear and still choose courage. Courage is the capacity to move forward, even when the bells and buzzers of our self and social-oriented survival instincts are telling us to sit down and be quiet. In fact, courageous people know fear more intimately than most because they face their fears and overcome them on a regular basis. While others who are unconscious of their fears remain incapable of acting, courage begins with recognizing our fears and continues with our stepping right into them saying, I am afraid, and I will move ahead anyway, because I know what is right. Martin Luther King Jr.'s colleagues report that even though he was preoccupied with the fear of death almost every day, he still took action for civil rights. Forms of Courage The form of courage that is most often required of leadership for the common good is moral courage. Moral courage is willingness to do the right thing when the wrong thing is easier and less costly. When leaders are facing resistance and find themselves caught between their commitment to the change agenda 
and their instinct for self-preservation, and first and second circle concerns, what supports them in maintaining a third circle orientation is moral courage. Because they can be personally costly, however, actions based on moral courage are rare events. Robert Kennedy commented, Few people are willing to brave the disapproval of their fellows, the censure of their colleagues, the wrath of their society. Moral courage is a rarer commodity than bravery in battle or great intelligence. Yet it is the one essential, vital quality of those who seek to change a world, which yields most painfully to change. Moral courage is like a stem cell form of courage. From moral courage are generated other expressions of courage as required in all dimensions of a leader's life, such as social, emotional, intellectual, physical, political, and spiritual courage. Leaders express social courage by standing up for what they believe among their peers, at family get-togethers, at neighborhood gatherings, and in meetings with professional colleagues. In doing so, they liberate themselves from undue peer pressure and live undistracted third circle lives. Leaders show emotional courage when they allow their feelings about injustice to infuse their communications. For example, Ray Williams, a Native American leader who lives in the state of Washington, represents Native concerns in meetings across the United States and around the world. When he speaks of the challenges of his people, he often weeps, transforming the hearts of his listeners and thereby reweaving the connections between Native and non-Native peoples. Leaders practice intellectual courage every time they ask difficult questions for the sake of the common good, such as, what can we do to promote greater gender equity in this institution? How will we manage our local water resources for the sake of salmon and people? How would a just global economic community look like? Or how can we provide a basic education to every child on the planet? Leaders practice physical courage when they endure physical hardship because of their work for the common good. For example, Suki showed physical courage during Burmese protest in the midst of armed soldiers and also during the many years she was under house arrest. So did the protesters in Egypt, Tunis, and Libya in 2011, who knew they would pay a physical price for publicly advocating for democratic reform. On a local level, it takes physical courage to start a neighborhood watch program to reduce crime by getting rid of crack houses. Leaders practice political courage when they are willing to spend political capital on issues that matter and deal with the consequences. The leaders who spoke up for abolition in 1850 opposed the Vietnam War in 1964 and resisted going to war with Iraq in 2003, all practiced political courage. Leaders practice spiritual courage by caring deeply enough about their faith and spiritual traditions to declare and commit to them openly. Further, spiritual courage is required to recognize that spirit is the author of many faith stories and that we must therefore put aside religious differences 
when working for the common good, and acknowledge how moral purpose binds the many faith stories together. As it turns out, moral courage can cost a person plenty. In Suki's case, years of imprisonment and house arrest. In other cases, it can lead to torture during imprisonment, as it did for U.S. civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hammer, or even death, as with Benazir Bhutto and Mahatma Gandhi. Most of us will not face risk of this scale, yet even in the most ordinary life circumstances, people often pay a price for moral courage. For example, speaking up about a controversial issue in the neighborhood may elicit ridicule from the neighbors, or being the one to raise the difficult question at the office could cost someone their job or limit their career. Because courageous leadership can be costly, it is important to know how to renew our courage. One essential source of courage is personal core values. Suki underscores this connection in her speech, Freedom from Fear, written in 1990. The wellspring of courage and endurance in the face of unbridled power is generally a firm belief in the sanctity of ethical principles. It is man's vision of a world fit for rational, civilized humanity, which leads him to dare and to suffer to build societies free from want and fear. Concepts such as truth, justice, and compassion cannot be dismissed as trite when these are often the only bulwarks which stand against ruthless power. People with moral courage are often compelled to ask, what do my core values ask of me in this situation? And the important follow-up question, knowing that my actions might be costly, why do it anyway? In response, some reply, because it is the right thing to do, for my children and grandchildren, because I want to be able to look myself in the eye, in the mirror. Now that I know, how could I spend my life on anything less? If not me, then who? When leaders are aware of the call of their core values in a given situation and reflect on why they will follow the call despite possible negative consequences, they exhibit moral courage. Courage as a virtue. The fact that courage has long been considered one of the classical virtues offers insights into its nature. Aristotle regarded courage as first among all virtues because it takes courage to put the other virtues into action. In addition, Thomas Aquinas, building on the work of Aristotle, placed courage alongside justice, prudence, and temperance as one of the four cardinal virtues fundamental to all virtuous behavior. The word cardinal is from the Latin word cardes, meaning hinge. A cardinal virtue allows access to the development of all other virtues. Virtues are expressions of moral excellence developed through practice. Virtues are made up of habits and habits are constructed from individual moral choices. A virtue is composed of countless single moral choices that when woven together become substantial enough to bear a lot of weight. To better understand this idea, imagine moral principles as strands of fiber. As a person makes moral choices and lives them on a daily basis, those individual choices 
twine together to form a rope, a habit. As habits are practiced over time, the ropes twine together to become a cable, a virtue. When asked how one develops courage, Aristotle, in essence, responded, How does one become a good cobbler? By making shoes. How does one become a good shipwright? By building ships. How does one become courageous? By acting courageously. Leaders develop the virtues they practice every day. Conversely, leaders become depraved by behaving immorally every day, affecting the moral fabric of their society. A virtue, according to Aristotle, is a middle path. In this context, courage is a middle way between recklessness and cowardice, between taking action foolishly and taking no action when action is needed. Thus, courage is a reasoned approach to taking action involving strategy, astuteness, and prudent use of resources. For example, a member of a CEO's executive team might decide to challenge a questionable institutional practice, such as giving indulgent executive team bonuses. Using courage as a middle way between recklessness and cowardice, knowing the policy was instituted by the CEO himself, she might decide to talk to the boss privately rather than impetuously raising the concern during a team meeting. She might also choose to use wisdom and humility in her approach rather than thoughtlessly critiquing her boss. In the meeting with the CEO, she might present her concern in the form of two requests. Can you tell me the history behind our executive compensation policy? And I have been noticing some unintended consequences of the original policy and would like to explore them with you. Not wanting to let cowardice manifest in the form of procrastination, she could add, when is a good time to get together and explore this question? Rather than sitting on a difficult issue or rushing in where angels fear to tread, she finds a middle way strategically tailored for the occasion. An example of the strategic use of the middle way of courage applied on a larger scale is the Salt March led by Mahatma Gandhi in 1930. This three-week protest march from Gandhi's ashram to the seashore to collect salt with it was a public protest of the salt tax imposed by the colonial government and the beginning of the larger protest of British rule. Gandhi made some strategic choices concerning the march. He realized it would provoke the colonial government to respond with force, which would bring international attention to India's movement for independence. He also knew it was a compassionate choice because everyone in India used salt and because the tax was hurting the poor the most. In addition, he designed the march to make participation in it possible for the vast numbers of people, since India has plenty of oceanfront and anyone could make salt. While the middle way is usually best, the urgency of today's social, economic, and environmental challenges call us to be bolder in our actions. For too long, humanity's collective courage on behalf of the common good has generally leaned towards timidity. But considering the fierce urgency of now, the needle should be tipped slightly with great care in the direction of recklessness to extend freedom to all, end hunger, relieve thirst, end war, reverse global warming, 
and leave a legacy worthy of our grandchildren's dreams and aspirations. Courage and the other six common good leadership practices. Courage, situated at the center of the common good leadership practices model, reverberates through the model like a heartbeat. Providing energy to each of the other six practices, it takes courage to align our lives with core values, to open ourselves to experience the margins, to sit in the tension between what is and what ought to be until a vision is born, to dedicate ourselves to inclusiveness in the form of gracious space, to claim our voice and then speak the truth in love to power, and to walk into the most difficult questions on our watch, whether or not we have received the gift of hope. None of these six practices is causal advice. Each one is an invitation to consciously choose the challenges associated with purposeful and intentional living. Moreover, the model is cyclic. In developing skills supporting leadership for the common good, leaders move around the circle of practices not once, but many times. Courage assists them in beginning every cycle as an opportunity to deepen each practice. It is as if courage asks, this time, when you commit to values, will you follow them into the conversations and the places where you would rather not go? This time, when you go to the margins, will you stay longer and listen more deeply? This time, while co-creating gracious space, will you stretch a little further as you invite strangers? This time, when you proclaim your vision, will you engage power with truth and love in a more compelling way? This time, will you venture further into the core of the issue in pursuit of change for the common good? Each time we circumnavigate the model by doing the practices, we have a chance to mature as leaders for the common good. In this way, leadership grows through practice, a phenomenon that holds true for all leaders even those we regard as icons of leadership. For example, Martin Luther King Jr. had embraced nonviolence as a methodology from the beginning of his career, but only over time did he grow into living it deeply. Because his life was constantly threatened, local civil rights activists in Montgomery encouraged him to keep guns in various places around his house. On Sunday night, February 26, 1956, Bayard Rustin, the black civil rights activist from New York who counseled King on principles of nonviolence, visited him and his wife, Coretta, in the parlor of their home. When Rustin learned about the guns throughout the house, he challenged his host. Rustin asserted that even though King was planting seeds of nonviolence in the movement, the presence of guns was a violation of those teachings and would limit his and the movement's effectiveness. Author Stuart Burns captures the exchange that followed between Rustin and King. The movement is nonviolent, King replied stiffly. We're not going to harm anybody unless they harm us. But he believed that black people had the right to defend their homes and families. Rustin responded that in this historic situation, such rights were trumped by a greater moral responsibility, a commitment to Gandhian nonviolence called for unconditional rejection of retaliation 
even in self-defense. Rustin asserted, two decades after King's death, the glorious thing is that he, King, came to a profoundly deep understanding of nonviolence through the struggle itself and through reading the and discussions which he had in the process of carrying out the protests. Courage and the six other practices reinforce one another. Each one of these six practices, when engaged, fosters the development of courage in the leader. As courage flows into the six other practices and we work with them repeatedly, we build up a reservoir of experience with them. Then those reservoirs of experience are available to us as assets to draw from when courage is needed. Engaging the practice is very much like going to the gym daily to build muscle, so courage is available when needed. Aligning with our personal core values roots us in the third circle, where courageous choices, while not easier, are more obvious. When the right choice is obvious, it fills us with internal conviction that we must act. Further, because our core values are a deep expression of our authentic selves, we become inspired to courageously embody those values for the sake of our integrity. Embracing the wisdom of the margins builds a sense of solidarity with those who are enduring injustice and hardship. Solidarity inspires courageous action because when suffering has a name and a face, leaders are emboldened to act out of empathy. Crafting a vision, a picture of what could be, stirs our hearts and moves us to courageous action. It is also true that with a vision, our moral conviction flourishes, leading to courageous action. Creating gracious space, an environment marked by inclusiveness and openness, allows all members of a group, including the leader, to courageously raise difficult questions, knowing the group has the best interest of all its members at heart. Gracious space provides an ideal environment for people to practice courage, and in the process, they develop courageous habits that can be practiced anywhere. Claiming voice and thus answering a call can provide leaders with the courage necessary to act on a vision. For example, when Suki claimed her voice as leader of the democracy movement of Burma and received 82% of the popular vote in 1990, her courage was informed not just by a personal response to injustice, but also by the call of national leadership. When leaders receive hope in their dark moments, it refuels their hearts with courage to keep going. In Spirit's company, leaders' hearts are quickened by hope and new storehouses of courage are discovered and employed. Spirit plays a vital role in the development of courage, as can be seen in the lives of many transformational leaders, especially those associated with the religious sector, such as Mother Teresa, Thich Nhat Hanh, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. But Spirit has also been an important source of courage for individuals in many other sectors, Former president of Poland and trade union leader Lech Walesa attributes his courage to his Catholic faith, and a spiritual vision gave sojourner truth 
the perfect trust in God and prayer that fueled her remarkable career as a black American abolitionist and women's right activist in the mid 19th century. Spirit becomes a source of courage through daily personal spiritual practice. When a relationship with spirit is nurtured by leaders, they become increasingly influenced by the divine call to work for the common good. Practicing Courage While leaders can practice courage in the context of the other six practices, courage can and should also be practiced in its own right. If we want better upper body strength, we know where to go and what to do. But where is the courage gym? What can leaders do to practice courage? Eleanor Roosevelt answered this when she said, We gain strength and courage and confidence by each experience in which we really stop to look fear in the face. We must do that which we think we cannot. Each time we face our fears and take a step forward to initiate change despite those fears, we build our courage. The first time we act with courage, it may be difficult. The second time may seem even harder because we remember how awkward it felt the first time. But the 100th time we act with courage, it will be much easier, as illustrated by the following story. A woman organized, led, then spoke at a human rights rally. After her speech, another woman came up to congratulate her and said, I would give anything to be able to speak out about my beliefs publicly like you just did. The women, woman replied, would you be willing to speak at 1,253 rallies? Similarly, Jeffrey Wigand, a former researcher at Brown and Williams Tobacco Company, whose story was made famous in the movie The Insider, exemplifies a leader who developed courage to a high degree. Drawing on his moral courage, he became a whistleblower for an entire industry, exposing the intentional harm and deceit perpetrated on the public by the tobacco companies. In spite of losing his job and facing lawsuits and death threats, the best way to begin building courage is to practice courage in small ways in daily life, preparing ourselves to face bigger challenges when they come. What takes courage for you to do may not require courage for another person, since everyone's background and psychology are different. The important thing is to constantly foster courage by practicing behavior that evokes fear within you, but you know must be done. Each time we act with courage in any setting, we increase in confidence to act with courage in all settings. To build courage, we can also refer to our experiences with courage, which includes the experiences of others we have observed or read about. History is filled with stories of exceptional people whose courage can inspire us, such as the behavior of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Mary McLeod Bethune, Oscar Romero, Cesar Chavez, and Chief Joseph. Sources of courage can be fictional as well. Sam in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings displays extreme moral courage as he helps Frodo avoid the temptations of the ring. Sidney Carton in Charles Dickinson's Tale of Two Cities also exemplifies moral courage taken to a sacrificial level 
when he offers his life for a friend, saying, It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. In her speech entitled Freedom from Fear, Suki aptly states that courage comes from developing the habit of not letting fear dictate one's actions. Fearlessness may be a gift, but perhaps more precious is the courage acquired through endeavor, courage that comes from cultivating the habit of refusing to let fear dictate one's actions, courage that could be described as grace under pressure, grace which is renewed repeatedly in the face of harsh, unremitting pressure. As courage grows, it reverberates through our choices and actions, increasing our capacity to be leaders for the common good. Exercises. Practicing courage. Identify a challenging situation you are facing that according to your core values requires action, but which might be costly. Next, reflect on the question, why do it anyway? List at least three reasons. Finally, listen to your heart to see if one of those responses has the power to deepen your courage, to act in alignment with your core values, to affirm this new reason to be courageous, speak it out loud to a friend or write it down. Reflection questions. In your life, what is more important than fear? What are three ways you could practice acting with courage in your day-to-day -day life? As you think about the common good leadership model, which of the seven practices of common good leadership causes you the most anxiety? What three steps can you take to gain the courage to practice it?